Well, good morning, everybody. And Merry Christmas. Thank you for, for joining us this morning in, in worship. It's good to, to be together. I know that it is a cold, wet morning outside, but it is good to gather together as God's people, especially on the Sunday before Christmas, as we gather and we celebrate the, the Advent, that our Savior has finally arrived. Uh, I want to begin this morning with just a few announcements. Uh, you'll see there in your bulletin, we have choir practice on Wednesday and our Christmas Eve service on Friday. Uh, if you have nothing to do Christmas Eve, Come join us at 6 o'clock here. We will have a, a short service entitled uh, Lessons and Carols. So we will sing some songs together, and we will learn uh, biblical truth lessons that, that point us to the arrival of our Savior. Um, so it, it will be a good service, a good time of worship as we prepare ourselves for Christmas Day the following morning. want to point your attention just to a few more things. Uh, if you haven't already, the mailbox is in the back. Check for your Christmas cards. They're, they should be there. Make sure you grab those. Uh, I know those boxes can fill up pretty quickly. Uh, so if you haven't checked them, check back there. Find, find the box with your name on it and grab, grab your cards. Uh, also want to remind you, uh, this Sunday, this morning, is our last Sunday for our love offering. Uh, we have been collecting a love offering over the last couple of weeks for a family in need of some uh, help paying some medical expenses. Okay. Sure. So we'll, we'll extend it. So this Sunday and next Sunday. Um, if you would like to give to that love offering, just write on the memo line or of a check or the envelope love offering and make sure Pat gets that and she'll know where to send that. Um, the last announcement I have is for Children's Story and Nursery. Uh, this Sunday is our last Sunday for our Advent wreath, but next Sunday we'll get back into Deuteronomy and back into our normal children's story. And so we do need people to sign up for it. Uh, the sign-ups are in the narthex on the back table for both our children's story and our nursery workers. So if you would like to do that, please sign up. If you have questions about what that looks like, let me know. We'd love to talk to you about it. Are there any other announcements this morning? All right. Got everything. Success. Well, let me, uh, I want to read to you from Isaiah 42 as we begin. It is, I thought it was a, an appropriate passage to read to you this morning. Um, it is a, a passage of promise, a passage of hope regarding the servant of the Lord, our Savior Jesus. Uh, this was given to Isaiah several hundred years before the birth of Christ, but this is what God says about Christ. He says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will not grow faint, excuse me, he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. It's such a helpful, helpful reminder, a very powerful encouragement. You know, this... Uh, during the Advent season, we light our Advent wreath. And every candle, you can see that which candle got lit first because it gets smaller and smaller than all the rest. And Isaiah 42 is, is a, a promise that even if our own candle gets so dimly lit where the wax is all but burned up, the wick is almost gone, and the flame is just barely flickering, the promise of the Savior is that small little flame he will not snuff out. And so you may be hurting this morning, you may be mourning, you may be having had a coming off of a, a hard week where it feels like that, that wick, is that, that fire is just barely hanging on to life. 
And the good news is that you have a Savior who promises he will not put that fire out. And he will restore and he will encourage and he will uplift. And this is who we gather this morning in worship. Let me pray for us and we will begin our worship service. It's in Jesus' name, Father, we come to you and we pray that you would bless us this morning. God, you are are providing for your creation outside with rain. And we ask that you provide for us this morning with worship and with grace and with renewal, with encouragement. Father, help us to see your glory. Help us to see you. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus. Thank you for his birth and the reason that we gather this morning in celebration of this. May he increase and may we decrease this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let us sing together this morning. Our first hymn is hymn 188, Angels We Have Heard on High. Please stand and sing. Thank you. Please be seated. Uh, If our little ones want to come forward, uh, Lynn and Pat have our children's story this morning. Good morning, everybody. 
read from Luke, the second verse, verses 10 through 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Y'all know what this is? What's this? What is it? Okay, have you gotten any in the mail? Have you gotten any in the mail? Really? I know, because I saw them hung up the other night. So, really? Well, a couple's better than none, isn't it? So what's in there? What is it? Okay, a name in there. But does it say wishing you a wishing you a Merry Christmas? So that's a message. Okay. And what happened was that Pat and Ronald they sent me a message. Which is good, right? Always people miss. So what happened a long, 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 long time ago was that angels came And they brought Mary and Joseph a message, and they brought the shepherds a message, and it was really, 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 really good. It was good, good news. But we want to hear the good news, right? So tell me what's wrong with that. Can you tell me what's wrong with my pencil? Yeah. It's really broken now, isn't it? But now can I still use it? Well, sort of, right? I can sort of use it, but a break is a break. That's the way I teach my kids at school. When we talk about broken bones and stuff, they always fuss at me because we're breaking up our pencils. But it's, it's broken, right? So this is like us. We're all broken. We do things wrong every day. Well, but but we can we can live and and but we're broken. And Patrick talks about it a lot from the pulpit that we are broken, but the way that we can get fixed is how. It has to do with that good news. It has to do every what was what was the good news that the angels brought? What back Mary was having a baby. Who was the baby? Jesus. Yep. And Jesus came to do what? 
Uh huh. Save who? Save us. That's just a really good example of how much God loves us. So, my bet is, Eddie, you know John 3.16, don't you? Do you? You want me to get it started? Does he know it? Okay. It says, for God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. That's the best news, right? That's what the angels came for and that's what, that's what Mary had a baby for. And that's what, why we sing songs. It's why Christmas is so cool. Christmas is a whole lot more than gifts, right? It's a whole lot more than gifts. Exactly, exactly. So we're going to talk about... This Christmas, what is it? It's an angel blowing a horn. And there's a really cool thing about that horn. That's called a heralding trumpet. You want to hear what one sounds like? Real quick. Okay. Real quick, we're going to hear what a heralding trumpet sounds like. I have a friend that has one. If I can find it. Sounds so cool, doesn't it? So that's what a heralding trumpet sounds like. So when I think about what that, when the angels came and stuff, I think about, oh boy, I bet they had those cool trumpets with flags on them and everything. So what we need to do is be like the angels. And everybody that we see, we need to be sure and tell them about who? Tell them about Jesus and tell them how much he loves us. Is that cool? Can we end in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, bless these children as they grow and become knowledgeable in your word. Bless our church. And the week as we go forward and move into Christmas, um, that we all share your word to others. Amen. What? Look, there's a snack in that basket right there. In the front of your hymnals, uh, you'll find a laminated copy of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, We say this creed here every week because, uh, really, for one, it's truth. Uh, This creed, the the things that are are found here in this statement, is is true. And this is what we gather around as God's people. Uh, And so I invite you, to, as you stay seated, to read it aloud with me, to say it aloud with me. And then uh, Lynn is going to play our doxology, and I'll invite you to stand and sing the doxology immediately following. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. standing our next hymn this morning is hymn 186 silent night Please be seated.
have your Bibles, I invite you to, to grab them and turn with me, <clears throat> excuse me, turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there should be a blue Bible on the end of your pew. Feel free to grab one of those and, and use those this morning as we, as we read. We're, we're going to finish our Advent series this morning. And next Sunday, we will be back in our study of Deuteronomy and, and continue to, to push our way through the, the book of God's law there, but I've, I've enjoyed this this break for Advent season, studying these, these 18 verses in John 1. I want to read to you, our focus this morning is on the end, verses 14 through 18, but I want to read all, the whole section for you this morning. This is what John writes. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, But of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come... With a simple prayer. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. 
What is the best Christmas gift you've ever received? Maybe it was, there's, there's such a, a challenge to answering that question because we can fit gifts into so many different categories. Maybe, maybe your favorite gift was something that you really, really wanted. Or maybe it was something you really needed. <laughs> maybe it was something you didn't know you wanted or needed until you had it, and then you realized how much you wanted and needed it. Now, personally, I think that needed gifts are far better than wanted gifts. You see, it's, it's one thing for, for you to ask me, what do you want for Christmas? And then I tell you what I want, and you go buy that thing and give it to me. I, I appreciate the gift. I really do. But to give, something, to give someone a gift that they need, you have to know them. You have to know what they want and how they spend their time. You have to know what their hobbies are and what their dreams and desires are. You have to know the, the holes in their life that... That's an object or a thing could help accomplish some task that they're trying to do. You have to know someone to give them a needed gift. You see, isn't that the, the beauty of Christmas? I mean, on this holiday, we, we celebrate the, the greatest gift that any of us have ever been given, really and truly. It was a gift that we longed for, even if we didn't know how to put that longing into words. We needed it. It's a gift that we needed really more than anything else we've ever needed. And this morning, I want us to look here at these last uh, four verses of, of John's prologue to his gospel. And I want to look at it through this lens of, of what we need and what we desire, what we want. But the problems that we encounter in seeing those met. Because you see, in Christ, as John is going to, to show us, in Christ, God is revealed and glorified among mankind. But for man, for us to truly see this revelation of God, we must receive grace in Christ. So let me begin with this need. If you need to know God, look to Christ. If you need to know God, look to Christ. We see at the end in verse 18, John says that no one has ever seen God. And this, this might not be the most profound theological truth that you'll hear this morning, but, but just consider it for, for, for just a second. Think of all the ways that God has, has spoken and shown himself throughout history, is specifically in the Old Testament. And still, John says, no one has ever seen him. And we have Abraham, who saw the torch pass through the, the animals. We have Moses seeing the burning bush, and then Moses seeing his back. We have Isaiah seeing the hem of his robe fill the temple. And still, no one has ever seen God. And there's, there's an aspect of this fact that, that is that's wonderful. right? It, it, because this, this reality of God teaches us that, that God is so transcendent. He is so far and above everything that we know as our world and our lives that that he is unreachable. And he's so unreachable that he's unviewable. And he's so holy and yet so merciful that he stays far enough away so that his, his presence does not crush us, but he stays close enough to us that we cannot forget who he is. You see, there's a, a problem in this. While it's a good thing that we have not seen God because he is, he is so much bigger than us, 
There's a problem because you and I were made in the image of God. Which means that when God created you and he created me, he created us to know him. To see him. And yet we cannot. So there exists within each person a very real God-sized hole that cannot be filled. St. Augustine said very powerfully, he said, Our souls, Lord, are restless until they find their rest in Thee. We were made to know God, to see Him, but no one ever has. And think of it like this. If, if you were not able to see my family, had no idea what they looked like or what, what they sounded like, how would I go about introducing them to you? How would I go about helping you understand what my family is like? You see, I could, I could stand and I could tell you about them. I could tell you about what Eddie looks like and his height and his stature, the, the things that he likes to do. I could tell you the same about Nora, my wife. I, I could intel, tell you all the things that we enjoy doing together as a family. But I still would argue that at the end of that conversation, you still wouldn't really know my family. I could also show you pictures, show you videos that we've taken on our phones of the kids playing together, running around with the dog together. I could show you image after image after image, video after video, so that you don't just hear me tell you about them, but so that you actually see them. To visibly see and to audibly hear what my family is like would be far better than me just telling you and describing them to you. Now, put this in, to put this in perspective, consider then that if, if no one has ever seen God, like John says here, consider what Paul says in Colossians 1 of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. So though, though that no one has ever seen God in Christ, we have the picture. We have the image of that which was invisible to us. What was for so long invisible in Christ, God has become Visible, You can see him and know him. How is this possible? Look at the beginning, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word. A being that is, is so united with God that he is called God, yet so distinct from God that it says the word was with God. The word that created all things. So that when God said, when his word went forth and he said, let there be light, it was this word that became flesh. God became man. And it's such an important doctrine for for our Christian faith that you look through the, the, the years of church history, specifically the first several hundred years of the early church. And this doctrine, more than anything else, was attacked and attacked and attacked. By heresy after heresy after heresy. Even so that when John, before John died, he was confronting and having to deal with heretics. And see, really, there were two of the, the most common attacks were that Jesus only appeared human. That he didn't actually have a physical body. He was what we might call a hologram, because that's a thing. Or that Jesus was only a man who's on whom the Spirit of God came down at his baptism, but the Spirit then left him at his crucifixion. Which 
neither one of these makes sense. I mean, the New Testament writers take the matter very seriously, and I think so should we. John took this issue very, very seriously. There was a man, uh, the church historian Eusebius, there was a man named uh, Corinthus. And Corinthus was a docetist, which means that he believed that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he wasn't human. And John and Corinthus would get into these very public debates, and Corinthus would come into churches that John had planted and, and talk about this. And there's a Eusebius writes of, a, of an incident where John had, had entered a, a bathhouse to wash. But he walked in and he saw Corinthus sitting across the room in the bathhouse, and he leapt out of the place. He running for the door, and he urged everyone who was with him to do the same, saying, Let us flee, lest the roof fall in, because Corinthus, that enemy of the truth, is inside. In Second John, his second letter, he, he writes, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver. And an antichrist. John had powerful words for anyone who disagreed and said that Jesus did not have flesh, that he was not fully human. And I think you and I must also come to the same understanding that this matters a great deal when we say that Jesus was fully God and fully human. You say, well, why, why does it matter so much? It's, it doesn't seem like it would change that much, but it would. Because you see, if, if Jesus was not fully human, then he could not die in the place of humans. Which means he cannot save humans. Hebrews 2 verse 14 says, Since therefore the children, that's us, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Christ had to take on the same qualities that we have. The same flesh, the same blood, the same stomachs, the same lungs, the same heart, the same mind, all of it. In order to deliver us from the slavery out of fear of death that we endure for our entire lives. One early church father said, that which Christ does not assume, Christ, that is what Christ cannot, he cannot redeem. Christ is not fully human, then he cannot be the substitute for humans. That, that's just the, the fact of the matter. But John says here in, in John 1, he says, The word became flesh and dwelt with us. That word dwelt is quite literally, you could, you could translate this in a more literal sense, and it would say the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. You see, the tabernacle was the place of God's dwelling in the Old Testament. It was a tent, a special tent. That God designed, and he gave Moses the, the structure and the blueprints for it. He says, build it just like this. And the tabernacle traveled with Israel throughout the wilderness. As the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire led them as they traveled, whenever the people stopped, that pillar, which was the presence of God, would come and hover over the tabernacle and descend into it. Because the presence of God, God himself, would dwell in this tent with Israel, with his people. And what John is saying here, when he uses this word intentionally, he's turning tabernacle into a verb, and he's saying, God tabernacled with us in the flesh. 
He chose to dwell among his people, not in a tent, not in a building, but in a body. You know, I spent I spent all week, more, more days than I would like to admit this week, trying to wrap my head around the Incarnation so that I can stand here and, and better explain it to you and, and give you a way to, to grasp it. But I, I say this morning to you that I do not, I have not arrived at a better explanation or a better understanding of it. And in that struggle this week, I, come, I, I came to realize that words are not sufficient to describe what takes place in that manger. You see, what makes Christmas so wonderful, what makes the incarnation so wonderful, is not that we understand it, but it is precisely because we cannot understand it. We cannot wrap our minds fully around the idea that God became flesh. I mean, who can fully explain how Jesus is both a 100% God and 100% man all at the same time? Who can grasp the majesty of this miracle? And who can, who can plumb the depths of the incarnation and come away saying, I found the bottom? It can't be done. I mean, the, the incarnation, the, the word made flesh, is given to us not to be understood by us, but to be worshipped by us, to be marveled by us. Let me offer you this warning, church, because this is the truth. This is the thing that you have probably celebrated and been taught your entire lives. If you've grown up anywhere around church, every Christmas we talk about Jesus, God, as a baby. Let me encourage and warn you to not let familiarity with this idea, with this truth, breed in you a contempt for it. That it loses that specialness. Don't get bored by the incarnation. But consider it. The very same God who knitted you together in your mother's womb was himself knitted together in a virgin's womb. The very God who said, let there be light, cried in a dark stable. Truths like this will never, should never become old or mundane or ordinary to us. In fact, John says, even though we've never seen God, the one who is at the Father's side, the one who sits in the Heavenly Father's lap, that one, the Son, He has made the Father known. He is Emmanuel. God with us. You see, God is not who we imagine Him to be or or who we wish Him to be. He is not made in our image. We are made in His. And though we have never seen Him, this Christmas child, the Word made flesh, the one who sits in the Father's lap, this one has made God known to you. And so if you need to know who God is, then what, if you need to know what God is like and what God does and what He desires, look to Christ. For He has made Him known. That covers the need. What about the the want, the desire? 
Well, let me tell you then that if you want to see the glory of God, then also look to Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, look to Christ. You see, if we were made with a need to know God, then we were also made with a desire for the glory of God. And the glory of God is a phrase that appears all throughout Scripture, and maybe you've heard it a lot and not really have an idea of what it might mean, but aren't really sure what this phrase, glory of God, means. If I could attempt a definition of it, I would say that the glory of God is the essence of God. It is, it is the physical manifestation of everything He is. That where God is, there His glory emanates and radiates from. In Exodus 33, Moses has, has just... He's been up on the mountain. Israel's at Sinai receiving the, the law from God. And Moses has just come down and he's broken the tablets and he's gone back up. And he's talking with God, asking for grace and asking for, for help. And Moses says to the Lord there in Exodus 33, he says, Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim to you before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I, sh I will show mercy. But then the Lord says to Moses, but you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Behold, there is a place beside me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And this is exactly what happens. Moses gets sort of crammed into the crack in the rock and God puts his hand over this crack. And Moses standing there, the glory of the Lord passes by this crack. And then God takes away his hand and Moses is able to see the back of God as he passes by him. But I love this passage because in this, Moses is expressing this desire to the Lord. Please show me your glory. Let me see you. Not just hear you, not just be in your presence, but let me physically, visibly see you. I want to see your glory. And the Lord says, I will make my goodness, all of my goodness, pass by you. And so if we can understand anything from this passage about the glory of the Lord and what it is, it is supremely his goodness. Moses does see this glory, and eventually when he comes down, because he has seen the glory of the Lord, when Moses returns and comes down from the mountain, his face is shining because he's been exposed to the glory. And it's so bright that he has to put a veil over his face because no one can be in the same room with him. You see, when John says here in John 1, he says, we have seen his glory. He says this at the end of verse 14. When he says that we have seen his glory, he is pointing to the glory of God as seen in Jesus. And John says this is proof that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me, let me ask you, if someone were to appear to you this morning or, or walk through the back door this morning and declare to you, I am the Son of God. How many of us would immediately go, okay, let's follow this man. Sure. He said it. It must be true. 
I, I think immediately our eyebrows would raise and we'd question and we'd say, let's back away before lightning strikes him down. But more than that, I think, okay, if you're going to make these types of claims, then you better have the proof to back it up. Show us some ID. Let's see who, if this is what you're saying, let's see some proof. And John says that the same thing sort of happened with Jesus, where Jesus comes in and he says, I am the Son of God. I have come to save you from your sins. And then he himself provides proof. And the proof, John says, is the glory. John says we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory that emanated from Jesus could only be from God. What we saw, what we witnessed could only be from Jesus, from from the Son of the Father. You see, John, the writer of this gospel, he witnessed the glory of God in in the face, in the life, in the death of Jesus. He saw that his miracles, he saw his power over sickness and over disease, over blindness. John saw his ability to feed 5,000 men with just a handful of food and have more leftovers than they started with. John heard his teaching, how he baffled the religious elite. He saw how he welcomed the little children, how he raised even the dead back to life. John was on the boat when Jesus calmed the storm with just a word. He was there when he caused the fisherman's net to overflow with fish. And while the other disciples hid in fear after Jesus was arrested, John was standing there. He heard the whole trial. John was the only disciple standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus took his last breath. This is the same John who outran Peter to be the first of the disciples at the tomb. So when John writes, we have seen his glory. He means that he has seen the glory of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. John has no reservations. He has no second thoughts. He has no hesitations or reconsiderations about who Jesus Christ truly is. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Word of God made flesh. I've seen it. You see, the glory, of, uh, the glory of God is this desire that we were created with. But the problem is that sin, like it has everything else, sin has corrupted that desire. And you see, instead of us being the glory givers that we were created to be, we become glory takers, glory thieves. I mean, consider, why why is it that everyone who witnessed what John witnessed, everyone who, the 5,000 who saw Jesus feed them all, why didn't every single one of them believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Why did the crowds who praised him as the King of David on Palm Sunday also shout crucify him the very next week? Did they not see what John saw? What does that mean for us who live 2,000 years after the fact? We haven't physically seen it. I mean, what we're really asking is, how do we get to the place where John is and say with John, I have seen his glory? Though, though we may think it, it was a different path for John, I think there's, a, there's an aspect of, of my own heart that longs to have been in John's shoes. If 
only I could have seen it, then I would believe regardless. Let me, let me assure myself and assure you in the process that John walked the same path that you and I now walk. Yes, John was an eyewitness of these things. But, in order for John to, to come away having seen the glory of God in Jesus, it required eyes of faith. And this is why so many of these same eyewitnesses refuse to believe and refuse to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. The glory of God in Christ was not revealed to everyone. Just how the glory that was revealed to Moses was not revealed to all of Israel. You see, so so when I tell you this morning that if you need to know God, then look to Christ. Or if you need to see the glory of God, then look to Christ. I mean it very quite literally. Look to Christ. Because in this looking, it requires eyes of faith to witness this glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Glory that is full of grace and truth. The question then remains is how? How do we look to Christ with eyes of faith? What is required to see Jesus as he is? And again, John gives us the answer. He says that to look to Christ with eyes of faith, you and I must receive from Christ grace upon grace upon grace. See, in verse 14, he says, excuse me, verse 16, he says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. You have this little parenthetical insert in in verse 15, speaking of John the Baptist, and for the sake of time this morning, I won't get in there. We talked about John a couple weeks ago as we looked at verses 6, 7, and 8. Go back and listen to that if you would like. The reason that it's here in verse 15 is because the rest of chapter 1 is primarily about John the Baptist and his ministry preceding the ministry of Jesus. But if we, for a moment, if you can, just if we were to take that out and you can see how verse 14, the end of verse 14, and the, end of, the beginning of verse 16 really connect. Just, just hear it. See it there. John says, we have seen his glory. Glory that is full of grace and truth. Because from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Do you see this connection? John says, we have seen his glory, this glory that is full of grace and truth, but the only reason we have seen it is because we have received from him grace upon grace. The only way to see the glory of God in Christ is to receive the grace of God in Christ. And look how this grace is given. Look at verse 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You know, first reading, it, it, it seems that John is sort of putting the two against each other. Law versus gospel. Moses versus Christ. And, and it wouldn't be unheard of. Other Paul and other New Testament writers and other places speak of this dynamic, this contrast between law and gospel. But this is not what John is, is saying. You see, the word for, which starts verse 17, for the law came through Moses, is also a reference back to the end of 16. We have received grace upon grace. You see, so what John is saying here 
is that when God gave the law to Israel through Moses, it was an act of grace. The law could not bring salvation. We know this. But in the law, it revealed a need for a Savior. It revealed the depths of the sin within us and how we were incapable and unable to obey even the simplest of commands. These revelations given to us by looking into the law of God were a grace to Israel. They are a grace to us. But now, John says, now a grace that is full, a grace that is complete, the glory of God that is full of grace and truth has come in Jesus. And in Jesus we have been given grace and truth in its fullness. Think of it like this. In John chapter 6, Jesus has, has just finished feeding the 5,000. He's just taken the loaves and the fish and he's broken them and he's fed 5,000 people with it. And the very next day, all 5,000 come back to Jesus and say, Hey Jesus, you got any more of them fish? We're hungry again. And, and we want to see something cool. Can you do that thing again? Because that was awesome. And Jesus just looks to them and, and says, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus is pointing back to the, the manna in the wilderness where, where through Moses, God gave Israel this crispy cream from heaven that sat on their doorsteps every morning for breakfast. And that it sustained them through the wilderness. It was, it was food, it was strength, it was life in a lifeless wilderness. But this manna was, was not enough. Israel got hungry the next day. They needed more manna to sustain them. They needed a better bread, a bread of fullness, if you will. Manna was the sample cup that you get at Sam's. It was enough to give you the taste and the flavor of it, but not enough to actually quench your hunger. Jesus then says, I am the bread of life. I am the true, the better, the full manna that comes down from heaven. this bread, the true bread, the full bread, completely satisfies. And anyone that eats of it will never hunger ever again. So John says, so the, the law was a grace, a foreshadowing, a taste, a scent of grace. But in Jesus, there is fullness of grace. In Jesus, all the promises, pictures, symbols, images of the Old Testament are fulfilled completely and perfectly. He is, his is a grace that is complete and full. And to see his glory with eyes of faith, to know God as he is, you and I must receive this full, complete, and perfect grace. I, I, can't, I can't really stress that word full enough. It comes up through, several times throughout these verses. And it just sort of, after being in it all week, it, that word fullness is, just jumps off the page. But you see that the grace that is offered to you in Christ is just that. It is full. And if John, or if anywhere in Scripture, describes something of God's as being full, 
do you think that you or I will ever reach its bottom? Can we ever drain that fullness? As children, my, my brother and I loved the beach. We played on the beach. We played on it for hours and hours and hours. And, and we played this game that both he and I always loved playing. And it was a game that we loved playing despite knowing that we were going to lose 100% of the time. It was a game destined for failure. You see, we build these makeshift walls. We, we dig a hole in the, in, the, in the dirt just a little farther up from the waves. And we dig a hole and we build up this, this wall as thick, as tall, as however we could do it. We were going to build a wall and protect the hole. No water was going to get inside this hole. And, and we, we, we knew it was a foolish game, not a chance of success. Because you see, the walls would, would survive that first little touch. As the tide comes in, the, the wave would just brush up against it. And we'd say, yes, we did it. And then the next wave would come a little bit higher up the wall. And it would, the wall would kind of move and we'd, we'd wait. And by the third wave, the walls would just come crashing down. And there we sat in this hole now filled to the brim of water. I, I couldn't help but think of this story this week. And... And wonder how often I have underestimated the full measure of grace in Christ. The way that my brother and I underestimated the measure of fullness in those waves. See, it didn't matter how strong the walls that we built were. The waves were coming. The waves were coming and they were stronger and deeper and fuller than any wall that we could have possibly built up. And in the same way, church, it doesn't matter how many mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter how many times you've felt unworthy or undeserving. It doesn't matter how low you may feel even this morning. The waves of His grace will break down every single wall you put up. There is no wall that it will not tear down. Because this is a grace that is full. This is a grace that is deeper this is a, a grace that gives you wave upon wave of grace upon grace every single day. And the beautiful thing about it is it's in those moments, as you're sitting in that hole watching those walls come crashing down as the wave after wave of grace after grace just comes barreling through it. And you're sitting in that hole, and now you're sitting in a hole that's been filled to the brim with grace. It's in those moments that I have found personally that you see the glory of God in Christ the clearest. Because you, you just know His grace far outweighs any wall I can put up. I, I pray for you this morning, church, that you have tasted what this grace is. That you have seen this glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, glory that is full of grace and truth. And in tasting this, you come to know God as He is. Christ is the greatest gift that you will ever be given. Ever. Ever. In Him, you can know God, actually know God. In Him, you can see the glory of God. But in order for this to happen, 
He must give you grace to see it. And you will never find a fuller grace. You will never find a deeper well or a richer spring. As one pastor long ago put it, there is more grace in Christ than sin than there is sin in you. I really hope that you all have a Merry Christmas this week. That each and every one of you would come to know this truth. And that you would wonder at the beauty and the majesty and just sit in awe over the incarnation. And that as you gather to celebrate Christmas this week, that you would gather with your friends and your family and your loved ones and you would worship the Son of God, the Word made flesh. There is no greater truth to celebrate. Pray with me. Father, would you give us once more the fullness of your grace? Help us to just sit to sit in awe of the incarnation, to sit in awe of the beauty, the wonder that you, our Creator, would enter your creation. That you, the invisible God, would become visible. That you, the eternal, would become bound by time. That you, the source of of life, true life, would taste death. This is grace. Grace that is unspeakable, unimaginable. And yet here we sit, having received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you. For sending us your son that we would be called children of God it's in Christ's name we pray amen our response time every week as we as we come to God's word we come away responding to the truths that we hear in in scriptures and the way that we do that here at Bear Creek is by taking communion together uh, Ron is at the back if you need communion uh, just raise your hand and he'll bring it to you. But let me just give you a, a few words of instruction as we come to this table. First, uh, you don't have to be a member of Bear Creek to take communion with us. Uh, communion is not a, a church member only type of thing, but it is a family of God type of thing. If you are here this morning and you have not placed faith in Christ, if you have not seen the glory of God in Jesus, if you do not know God in Christ, then this table is not for you. But I would love for it to be for you. And so rather than, than take a wafer and some grape juice this morning, if that's you, I offer you what Christ offers you, which is himself. Take Christ instead of this and receive from him grace upon grace upon grace. Christian, if you're here this morning, I'm glad you're here. 
There's a there's no greater way for us to kick off the week of Christmas than to worship together. But as we gather and we celebrate Christmas this week and we celebrate and remember the birth of Jesus this week, we must keep in mind, even if it's in the back of our minds, why Christmas came. Because Christmas without Easter is nothing. But because Easter is coming, because Good Friday is coming, then Christmas means all the more. And so as we come to the table and we consider the bread, we remember the body, the physically human body that God himself took on would be broken. And it would be broken for your sins and for my sins. The body of Christ broken for you. And in the cup, if the bread points us backwards in time, the cup points us forwards. Because you see, this Advent will not be the last Advent. Though we spent the last four weeks waiting and and celebrating the arrival of December 25th, the Advent of Christ, you and I, as, as His children, as followers of Christ, we are waiting a far greater Advent. The second advent. When Christ will not come as a baby in a manger, but he will come on a horse with a sword in his hand, conquering once and for all that serpent. And on that day, there will be no more pain. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more weakness. There will be no more disease. But God will fully and completely dwell, tabernacle with us in fullness. And until that day comes, as we sit in the wonderful grace upon grace that we've given, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, to the King. Our final hymn this morning is hymn 182. O come, all ye faithful, please stand and sing.
bulletin is printed there, the Great Commission. Uh, This is our benediction every week as we leave here because this is what Christ has commanded his people to go and do. And so I invite you to, to say it aloud with me as we end our service this morning. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.